Can you hear me okay? Great. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, if you don't know me, I'm Eric. I'm a pastor at HMCC of Jakarta. It's my privilege to preach the word of God for us today. Uh, we are currently in part 74 of our sermon series called Rediscover Jesus, where we're going through the gospel of Luke together. And today's sermon is titled, The Question of Caesar or God? Uh, let me pray for us again before we jump in. Lord, you are our God and we are your people. So as you speak to us, give us ears to hear hearts that are submissive and willing to receive your word and to give our lives to you who our lives rightfully belong to. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start today by looking at a few pictures and answering a few questions. <clears throat> so, one, two, three. First, is this a straight? Okay. Second, is this a square or a rectangle? Okay. <laughs> Number three, is this a whale or a mammal? Okay. <laughs> As you may have realized, these are not fair either or questions because the answer is both and for all of them. A strawberry is a type of fruit, a square is a special case of a rectangle, and a whale is a kind of mammal. In today's passage, the Jewish religious leaders are going to ask Jesus a similar uh, kind of either-or question on the lines of, should we submit to Caesar or should we submit to God? Should we submit to governing authorities or should we submit to God's authority? And Jesus will show them that this is not a fair either-or question because the answer is both and, because governing authorities are part of the everything within God's authority. So the one thing for today is this, submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority. Submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority. Uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 26. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. Uh, just a bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So this is Jesus' final week before his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And the religious lead, uh, leaders are trying to find a way to kill him. One day, as Jesus is teaching people in the temple, the religious leaders question his authority. Jesus answers their question with a question of his own and then with a parable. Essentially testifying, testifying that he is the son of God acting in the authority of God. And by the end of the parable, Jesus exposes the murderous intent of the religious leaders and that in killing him, they will be fulfilling prophecy about him, where Jesus will become the cornerstone of God's new temple, the church. But they, the religious leaders, will lose their spiritual authority over God's people and they themselves will be crushed. And that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. It says this, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage in two parts. First, Jesus is asked an either-or question, found in verses 19 to 22. And second, Jesus gives a both-and response, found in verses 23 to 26. So first, Jesus asked an either-or question. Look at verse 19. So the religious leaders perceive or understand what Jesus was exposing about them in the parable of the vineyard and the wicked tenants, that they want to kill him, that they will lose their spiritual authority, and that they themselves will be crushed. And then how do they respond after understanding all of that? Do they confess their murderous intent and repent of their exposed sins? Not at all. They should have, but that's not what they do. Instead, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. That is, they wanted to do violence to Jesus right there and then. Their initial reaction to the exposure of their sins was not repentance, but rage. Instead of humbling themselves and owning up to their sins, they get even more angry and harden themselves in their sin. So the religious leaders wanted to hurt Jesus right there and then, but then what stopped them? They feared the people. That is, they feared risking their own reputation and losing their authority in the eyes of the people by doing direct harm to Jesus for all the people were hanging on his words. This was the height of Jesus' popularity. In his earlier triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there was a whole multitude of his disciples spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the ground, shouting, Hosanna, or salvation has come, and blessed is the king who comes in, in the name of the Lord. Even though the religious leaders hated Jesus, they knew they couldn't touch him without suffering severe consequences from the people that all adored him. So what do they do? Look at verse 20. They watched him, trying to find some vulnerability or opportunity in Jesus that they could exploit. And they sent spies who pretended to be sincere or who pretended to be followers of Jesus who were really just conspiring with the religious leaders. So why were these spies sent? That they might catch him in something he said. They were to get Jesus to publicly say something controversial that would get him in trouble. And what was their goal? Why do this? So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, that is the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Only the Romans had the authority to execute the death penalty, not the Jewish religious leaders. So only the Romans could legally execute Jesus. And if the Roman governor was the one to execute Jesus, then the religious leaders would not be directly harming him so they could claim some level of innocence as they got Rome to do their dirty work, to get rid of Jesus. So this would enable the religious leaders to simultaneously kill Jesus and preserve their authority and reputation in the eyes of the people. It must have seemed like the perfect plan to them. So how does it play out? Look at verse 21. Now, it was completely true that Jesus speaks and teaches rightly and that he shows no partiality or favoritism, meaning that he isn't swayed by others in teaching the truth. He's going to teach the truth no matter what. And he truly teaches the way of God. All of this in what they were saying was true of Jesus. 
but we know that these spies sent by the religious leaders didn't really believe these things to be true. So this all constituted for them as flattery. If gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face, then flattery is saying to his face what you would never say behind his back. These spies were saying things to Jesus' face that they would never say behind his back. You know, flattery isn't strictly about the truthfulness of what is said, but about the sincerity of the one who says it. Truthfulness is regarding the accuracy of information that is being communicated, but sincerity goes beyond truth-telling to express something genuinely from the heart. So flattery can sometimes be true statements, but they are never sincere statements. They can sometimes be true, but they're never sincere. And to be clear, flattery is a sin. Proverbs 26, uh, verse 28 says, a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 29, verse 5 says, a man who flatters a net for his feet seeks to do him harm. Psalm 12, verse 3 says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Just think about that for a moment. If you are prone towards the sin of flattery, God's word says, may the Lord cut off your lips. It's better that you are unable to speak at all than for you to speak flattery. Now, why were these spies trying to flatter Jesus? Because they wanted to catch him in something he said and ultimately to get him killed. They were spreading a net for his feet, a trap. Now, ask yourself, why do I use flattery? In short, flattery is used to manipulate people. We use flattery to win people's approval. We use flattery to get our own way. We use flattery to manipulate their feelings towards getting what we want. Whereas encouragement is generous, sincere, and strengthening, flattery is selfish, insincere, and manipulative. We ought to flee from selfish, insincere, manipulative flattery. And we ought to commit to regularly giving generous, sincere, strengthening encouragement to others. A world of a difference. On a related note, Christians should be characterized by honest speech, where our yes is yes, our no is no, and we can be trusted to maintain appropriate confidentiality. In other words, we ought not to be what the Bible calls double-tongued. Do you say to a person's face what you would never say behind his back? Then you are flattering. Do you say behind a person's back what you would never say to his or her face? Then you are gossiping and perhaps breaking trust with others who have shared things with you in confidence. So much damage has been done to individuals, to churches, and to Christ's name due to free gossip and breaches of confidentiality. You know, perhaps some of us are not so different than these spies here. In our tendency to be double-tongued, we unknowingly work ruin. We spread a net for someone else's feet, and it would be better for us to be unable to speak at all. If you're beginning to realize that you're prone towards any of these sins, then the proper response is not rage, but it's repentance. Confess your sins, repent, turn away from them. Resolve to cut off your own double-tongued lips, so to speak, and resolve to be characterized by honest and encouraging speech. Going back to the spies, 
just look at how calculative this flattery was. You speak and teach rightly. You are not swayed by others and teach the way of God. Basically, they're setting up Jesus for their trap question to follow. They don't want him to answer with another question or another parable like he did before. But they want him to give a straight answer and not be concerned with the consequences that might follow. And then they ask their trap question. Verse 22 says this, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Notice the spies don't ask an open-ended question anymore, like the religious teachers asked before. By what authority do you do these things? They don't ask that kind of question. Last time they did that, Jesus asked them a binary either-or question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So they seem to have learned their lesson. They took their notes from Jesus, and now they're turning around and asking Jesus the same kind of binary either-or question here. Now, in order to understand how explosive of a question this was, we need to understand a bit more of the historical context. The issue of paying tribute to Caesar was highly controversial, especially among Jews in Judea. The tribute was the basic Roman tax imposed on every Jewish citizen just for living and working in the Roman Empire. But particularly in Judea, which the Jews considered to be their own land that God owned, they felt like... Uh, some, or some zealous Jews in particular, considered paying tribute to Caesar to be a sin because the Romans were robbing money that rightfully belonged to God. After all, this was God's land. On top of that, the tribute went to supporting the imperial worship where Caesar was deified and worshipped as a god. Around 6 AD, when Jesus was a boy, there was a man called Judas the Galilean who taught that God alone was Israel's king. And therefore, it was high treason against God for his people to recognize any Gentile or non-Jewish ruler by paying him tribute. Judas the Galilean, he led a revolt against the Romans, which was then crushed swiftly. But out of that crushed revolt came what became known as the Zealot Movement, which sought to overthrow Roman oppression and reestablish theocratic Israel. That is, they wanted to reestablish Israel as a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government where essentially religion rules the state. It's where the government uses its laws to enforce its citizens to live in accordance with its religious standards. For example, Vatican City, I'm not sure if you know this, it's the smallest country in the world. And it functions as a theocracy where the Pope is the supreme leader of the Roman Catholic Church and the state and he enforces its laws upon his citizens in that that country. So theocratic Israel was a theocracy where God was the supreme ruler over his people and he placed King David on the throne and called him and his descendants to lead his people in conformity to his word. Now all of this is to say that for the first century Jew living in Judea, the question of paying tribute or taxes to Caesar was essentially a matter of allegiance especially for the more zealous Jews, it was about lordship. We're paying tribute to Caesar, conceded that Caesar is the Lord instead of the one true God. So this was an explosive either-or question that was being posed to Jesus. It was essentially asking, should we submit to Caesar or should we submit to God? That's what this question was all about. And this seems to be a lose-lose situation for Jesus where he risks either alienation 
or arrest. In terms of alienation, if Jesus tells the people to pay tribute to Caesar, then many of the Jews would label him a traitor to his own people. They were expecting Jesus to be the messianic king who would liberate them from Roman rule, not try to keep them under it. Jesus would quickly lose his popularity and following, and that would lead to the end of his influence. In terms of arrest, if Jesus tells the people not to pay tribute to Caesar, then the religious leaders would report that to the Roman governor, who would label him as an insurrectionist and arrest him for sedition or inciting uh, people to rebel against Rome. The Romans refused to tolerate any kind of rebellion, so they would have swiftly arrested and punished Jesus if that were the case. So no matter how Jesus answered, he seems trapped. So how would he answer? We'll look at that next. So first, Jesus asks an either-or question. And second, Jesus gives a both-and response. Look at verse, uh, verses 23 to 24. So Jesus sees through the spies' flattery and he sees their craftiness or deceit or duplicity as other translations have it. Jesus knows that this question is meant to trap him. Jesus then asks for a prop, so to speak. He asks them to show him a denarius, which was a small silver coin worth about a day's wage for a laborer. Now, if you're in the crowd, you can feel the tension building up as the people are waiting for someone to just put forward a denarius. People are wondering, how in the world is Jesus going to answer this question? They all know it's a trap. How is he going to answer this? And what in the world is he going to do with that coin? And once the denarius is put forward, Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? The word for likeness is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1, verse 26, which we read uh, uh, which says that humanity is made in the image of God. So instead of likeness, it really says, so whose image and inscription does the denarius have? And they reply, Caesar's. Again, some historical context will help us better understand the relevance of the denarius. There were multiple currencies that were being used during the first century. Out of respect for the Jews' religious beliefs, the Romans allowed them to mint their own coins without images of people on them because the Jews believed that such coins uh, that had images violated the second commandment, that is, not to put images of so-called gods on anything. But the denarius was a Roman coin, and it had the image of Caesar imprinted upon it, and it had the following inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Such coins were highly offensive to Jews, and especially for the more zealous Jews, to have an image of Caesar who thought himself divine, to have that coin in your possession would be considered as idolatrous. But it was almost impossible for anyone not to have a denarius uh, on hand as long as they lived inside the Roman Empire because they operated in the economic world of Rome. In some sense, the rule of a nation extended as far as their coins were in circulation. It would be like living in Indonesia and not having any Indonesian rupiah. It would be very difficult to live in this country and not have any Indonesian rupiah. So even though the Jews didn't like it, the fact that they lived within the rule of the Roman Empire was shown by the fact that they had a denarius. It was unavoidable. And the denarius was the tax amount that had to be paid as tribute to Caesar 
by all adult men and women. And it could only be paid with that coin bearing Caesar's image and inscription. So this was directly relevant to the question of giving tribute to Caesar. But what's the punchline? Why is he bringing this up at all? What's Jesus' point? Verse 25 says this. He said to them, Then render to, Jesus, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. To render means to pay or to give. And this is probably the most influential political statement that Jesus ever made. But this was not the either-or response the religious leaders and the spies were hoping for. Essentially, Jesus responds with a both and. Their question was basically, should we submit to Caesar or should we submit to God? And Jesus' response is basically, submit to Caesar and submit to God. But we are not to submit to them in the same way. For clearly, God is greater than Caesar. We'll see that Jesus wants his people to submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority. How can we make that conclusion? We'll spend some time now unpacking what Jesus is saying here. First, Jesus denies that Caesar is divine because God is distinct from Caesar. That means Caesar is not a God, but God alone is the one true God. So God is clearly greater than Caesar. Second, Jesus is saying that God's authority is all-encompassing because scripture is clear that the things that are God's includes everything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. There is nothing that is outside the category of the things that are God's. Third, Jesus affirms the authority of Caesar. That is the authority of civil government or governing authorities. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar clearly exercises some legitimate authority that the Jews living within the Roman Empire ought to submit to. But fourth, Jesus quickly clarifies how they should understand Caesar's limited authority in relation to God's all-encompassing authority. They should not understand them as mutually exclusive in the either-or way that many of the more zealous Jews understood them to be at the time. That you're either aligned with Caesar or you're aligned with God. That's not how it works. That's not how they should understand it. Oh, you can show the next slide. So not like that. You know, perhaps many of us don't think of governing authorities and God's authority in that kind of either-or way where they're mutually exclusive, where it's one or the other. But some of us are tempted to function like they are completely separate categories as if they never overlap. As if God's things only includes our personal devotions and church life. And it has nothing to do with how we think about Caesar's things or government and politics. That's not true. There should be some overlap. But notice, Jesus does not say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's, as if they are in contrast with one another. But he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, because there is some connection between them. Namely, that Caesar's authority is subordinate to or under and within God's authority. They are also not to understand them as almost completely overlapping categories, as if Caesar's authority is only slightly subordinate to God's authority. The goal for believers is not to get Caesar or any governing authorities to enforce their faith through the government, to create a theocracy of sorts. That's not the goal. That's actually what many of the Jews were hoping that Jesus would do. 
They wanted him to overthrow the Roman government and to reestablish the theocratic government of Israel as the Messiah King and to use his governing authority to ensure that all the citizens were living in accordance with God's law. That's what they wanted. But that is not what Jesus came to do, at least not in his first coming, which he's been telling his disciples over and over and over again, that's not what I came to do. Ever since Israel's exile, no governing authority is ever to exercise that kind of authority again until Jesus' second coming, when he himself will come to establish the fullness of the kingdom of God on earth. Until then, Caesar's authority and all other governing authorities are greatly subordinate to God's authority. So then, how are we to understand Caesar's authority in relation to God's authority? Rather than these two misunderstandings, Jesus teaches that Caesar's authority is a legitimate yet limited subcategory within the much larger, all-encompassing category of God's authority. And so the people's submission to Caesar's authority is not high treason against God. And the people's submission to God's authority does not mean that they are to overthrow Caesar's authority and to try to reestablish the theocratic government of Israel. Rather, their submission to Caesar's authority is a part of submitting everything to God's authority. Now, I know that's a lot to take in. So, in summary, this is how the apostles Paul and Peter put it in their respective New Testament letters. They say it much shorter than I did. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 to 14 says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, this was a huge paradigm shift for the first century Jew living in the Roman Empire. But this was not a new idea at all. This was Jesus expounding other parts of the Old Testament. In Genesis 9, in the covenant God made with Noah, God authorized governing authorities to administer the justice required for protecting human life and to enable people to fulfill the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is what God originally gave to Adam and Eve in the garden and which God reiterates to Noah and his descendants. It's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So at the very least, governing authorities ought to protect the basic structures of marriage and family to be fruitful and multiply. And on a broader scale, governing authorities ought to facilitate the development of culture. But that's not all. The New Testament also expands our understanding of God's purposes for governing authorities. We already looked at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, but there's also Acts 17, 1 Timothy 2. I'm not going to go over it all. I don't have time. But this is what 1 Timothy 2 uh, verses 1 to 4 say. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are to pray that governments would work for peace and safety, which is important because God wants people to be saved. And this redemptive work of sharing the gospel and making disciples is primarily the work of the church, which is what the entire book of 1 Timothy is about. So we pray for this kind of stable context so that we can share the gospel and make disciples so that more people may be saved. So putting all this together, what are some of the God's purposes for governing authorities? 
There are at least three. To minister the justice required for protecting human life. To enable people to fulfill the cultural mandate, that is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it. And to provide a stable context for God's people to share the gospel and make disciples. But the governing authorities are still just a limited subcategory within the much larger, all-encompassing category of God's authority. We only need to hear a few verses in the Old Testament to recognize this. Psalm 22 says, For kings to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 4 says, The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God sovereignly reigns even over and through pagan governing authorities to accomplish his kingdom's purposes. You know, throughout scripture, he used Egypt as a stage for his great deliverance of his people. He used Assyria and Babylon to bring about the exile of his people amidst their disobedience. He used Persia to bring about the return of his people amidst their repentance. And he used Rome to set the stage for his greatest act of deliverance of his people in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now what does all of this mean for us? What does it look like for us to submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority? There are many applications, but let me just offer four. First, pray for governing authorities. Don't give in to the frustration or passivity that you might have, but pray for governing authorities as God commands us to in 1 Timothy 2. Pray that they would administer the justice required for protecting human life, that they would enable people to fulfill the cultural mandate, and that they would provide a stable context for God's people to share the gospel and make disciples. Second, pay your taxes. You know, this is probably the most direct application from this passage. Paying our taxes is ultimately part of our submission to God's authority. And this also relates to the next application. Third, obey the law. Generally, Christians should be law-abiding citizens. Of course, there may be times when we must stand and say we must obey God rather than man. Such as when governments command us to do anything that God forbids, like worshiping or praying to idols or when governments forbid us to do anything that God commands, like sharing the gospel. Those are times where we're called to say we must obey God rather than men. But generally, we ought to be known as those who honor governing authorities and obey the law. Fourth, as we saw from 1 Timothy 2, we ought to share the gospel and make disciples. Why do we pray for a stable context? Why do we often pray for for comfort, for safety, for healing, for good health? Is it merely to live a quiet, safe, and comfortable life? No, we don't pray for a stable context as an end, but as a means for us to share the gospel and make disciples. God's not about just our comfort. He wants us to have a stable context so that we can accomplish the mission that he called us to live. What's more, if we are regularly praying as a church for our persecuted brothers and sisters to be faithful in sharing the gospel and making disciples in their unstable environment, as we just heard earlier in our prayer petition, Would it not seem a bit hypocritical for us to not endeavor to share the gospel, make disciples in our more stable context? So those are four suggested applications. Pray for governing authorities, pay your taxes, obey the law, share the gospel, and make disciples. Now, I know that the Indonesian presidential election is coming up early next year, and there may be different worries and concerns about the future of our nation. You know, we're not going to tell anyone how to vote, But as you do vote, just keep in mind God's purposes for governing authorities, 
not your own preferences, not other voices, but what did God intend when he instituted governing authorities? And there you see it again. Administer justice, protecting human life, enable people to fulfill the cultural mandate, stable context for, for God's people to share the gospel, make disciples. And no matter what the outcome of the vote, trust that God sovereignly reigns over and through all governing authorities to accomplish his kingdom's purposes. And then pray for them, pay your taxes, obey the law, share the gospel, make disciples. In your worries and concerns, remember that Jesus said to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who had the authority to spare his life or take his life, he said in John 19 verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. The sinless Savior died so that sinful men may be saved. He bore our punishment on the cross so that his righteousness may be freely given to all those who repent of their sins and believe in him as Lord and Savior. Jesus' submissive death made no sense to any of his disciples at the time. But on the other side of his resurrection and ascension, we see that the most God-glorifying act of salvation that Jesus accomplished involved not overthrowing the Roman government as they all wanted him to do, but it involved submitting himself to them as part of submitting everything to God's authority. Now there's one more thing that we need to see in, in Jesus' response to the spies that we haven't noticed yet. In what Jesus says, he gives a more profound principle that goes far beyond the issue of taxation or civil government. The denarius was, had Caesar's image on it, and so Caesar could rightfully lay claim, claim to it through tribute. But all of humanity is permanently stamped with the image of God. So God alone can lay claim to each of our lives. Even Caesar himself, who is also made in the image of God, is under the category of the things that are God's. Now this is not just about taxes and civil government. This is not just regarding our time, treasures, and talents. But this is about giving ourselves wholly to God. As those who are created in his image, we rightfully belong to him. And as believers, this is meant to be our greatest hope in life and death. That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our greatest hope. Thank God we don't belong to ourselves. Thank God we belong to him. In essence, Jesus' response transcends the question of the spies. This is not just about giving tribute to Caesar or to God, but this is ultimately about giving everything, including yourself, to God. Peter Torgerson was a missionary to China in the early 1900s. He was born and raised in Norway by Christian parents, and he personally put his faith in Christ when he was 12 years old. When he was 18 years old, he heard a presentation about the great spiritual need in China where they had very little access to the gospel. He was immediately cut to the heart and when the offering plate was being passed through the congregation after the presentation, Torgerson emptied his pockets of everything, literally everything that he had. But even after he gave all that he had, he still felt that there was more to give. So he took out a piece of paper and he wrote the words, and my life. And he dropped it in the offering plate as well. And that was Torgerson's pledge to give his life to God for the people of China. You know, Torgerson's response may seem extreme to some of us, but when we understand the gospel, that our God left the comforts of heaven to be born as a man and to die on the cross, to literally give his life for such undeserving sinners like us, when we truly understand that gospel, 
How could we give anything less than our lives to God? If we have truly embraced the gospel, then the reality is that we already belong to God. Not only are we stamped with his image, but we are bought with his blood. So he doubly owns us, you could say. So to give our lives to him is not simply coming, uh, so giving our lives uh, to him is simply coming in alignment with what we have already embraced by faith in the gospel. It is to say to God, as one pastor puts it, I'm no longer my own, my owner, my master, my shepherd. You are my owner, master, and shepherd. Father, my treasure, my wisdom, my hope, my source of fullest and lasting pleasure. I renounce finding all of that in me. I look for it now in you because I'm utterly yours. The fundamental question that we ask ourselves is not what do I want or what do others want? But the fundamental question we ought to ask ourselves is, Lord, what do you want? You know, what might you be withholding from the God who has every right to your life? As followers of Christ, we don't just give our church life to God, but we give our family life, our financial life, our work life, our romantic life, our emotional life, our thought life, our social life, our private life. We give all of who we are to God for there is nothing that is not already his. And as Christians, all we do in giving our lives is saying, I already believe this is true. If I'm a Christian, I know that's true. And now I'm aligning my life to my faith. And the great comfort we have in giving our lives to the one who gave his life for us is that he promised that he did not come to steal or destroy our lives. But he came to give us abundant and eternal life. The best hands for our lives to be in are his, not our own. Think about what many of us have done when we put our lives in our own hands or any, any other person's hands. For many of us, we'd say we, we've run amok of our lives. But when we put our lives in God's hand, there's no greater meaning or purpose of security. It's the greatest comfort and hope that we have. We belong to him. So all of that is embedded into this one paradigm-shifting principle that Jesus stated here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And how did the spies and the religious leaders react to Jesus' masterful response? Look at verse 26. Jesus leaves them marveling at his answer and they are effectively silenced. No more manipulative flattery no more trapping questions, no more foolish talk. They are left in awe of Jesus' answer. And like Job, who was left silent in God's response to his questions, they have nothing more to do than to put their hand over their mouths and to proceed no further. They dare not proceed further. Though they came to dishonor and discredit Jesus, they are left in silent awe of him. Though they came to do him harm, Jesus shows himself to be the wisdom of God. And though they came with a limited understanding of God's lordship, Jesus manifests God's lordship over all things, not only over taxes and governments, but over everything in his creation and every individual person made in his image. Now, as we close, and as we are in the season of Advent, it's interesting that this issue of taxation brings us back to the birth of Jesus, where Caesar Augustus called for a census for the purpose of taxation. During the census, everyone had to return to their ancestral towns to register themselves. So Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem. So even in that, we see that God was sovereignly reigning through the governing authorities to have Jesus of Nazareth to be born in the city of Bethlehem 
in accordance with his word. Our God is above every ruler and authority in heaven and earth. And after his resurrection, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. So now, as his people, we give ourselves wholly to him, submitting everything to his authority, which includes submitting to the governing authorities that he has established and that he is sovereign over. So once again, the one thing for, today, for, for us today is this. Submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority. Submit to governing authorities as part of submitting everything to God's authority. As we remain seated, uh, let's take a few moments to personally reflect on God's word. You know, you keep your Bibles open. You can uh, keep the outline uh, on the, or the, um, uh, the purposes of, of or the, the, the four application suggestions on the screen. And let's begin to reflect and to pray personally in response to God's word. And then afterwards, uh, the, uh, the music team uh, will lead us in, in responding. Let's pray.